Noah will have plenty of time to set the record straight, 350 years. Most of us won't have that. None of us will, but we, we see that he sets the record straight and uh, you know, he moves on from it. But in this biography, we come to this family tragedy. I'll introduce it with verse 18. So chapter 9, Genesis 9, verse 18. We're just introduced here to the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark and they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham, interestingly, was the father of Canaan. And these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. I find it interesting, just sort of in passing, but I find it interesting when we come back to the idea that Canaan, so of all the, all the sons and the children and grandchildren, that Canaan is singled out when he lists the children, because as this is written, who, who writes it? Moses, thank you. So as Moses is writing this, he's leading the children of Israel, where? To the promised land, Canaan. See, so now I think I find it interesting that as Moses is writing this, the people of Israel are traveling to the land of Canaan, upon whom the judgment of God is passed all these years earlier. And so their sense of occupying the promised land should be growing. And uh, was not just, when, when you know about the promised land, it's not like God said, I feel sorry for you guys, I'm going to give you this. It wasn't like an afterthought of God. It wasn't some random act of kindness. This was in the making since the days of Noah. In fact, if you go down to verse 25, we'll come back to it later, but chapter 9, verse 20, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. So this was a curse that's been in the making since the days of Noah that they now will embrace as they take the land they're marching toward. And then as we witness this family tragedy unfolding, the lesson we learn puts to rest any thought that any of us ever had about our trouble being the fault of someone else. Think about it. If God were to eliminate every other sinner in the world, which he's just done, right? And he only kept the best. And let's assume you're included in that number, okay? I'm just going to make that assumption. But he, but he gets rid of all the other sinners, and he just keeps you, the best of the best, right? It won't be long before the same old troubles still come around. Consider the disgrace in this family tragedy, verse 20. And Noah began to be a husbandman, so everything starts out pretty much like normal. He probably learned this from his father, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and he was drunk, and he was uncovered in his tent. So he's laying naked in the tent, right? Drunk, on the floor of his tent. Life has started out pretty normal after the flood. Noah continues in the business of his father, which was likely included, would have likely included the fruit of the vine and the making of wine. Now, there is some shallow thought, and I, I just think it's shallow. It really is. There's some shallow thought that suggests the wine fermented on the ark, so maybe he just took him off guard. There's some that would suggest the wine fermented faster 
now in this new climate, right? The sun is brighter, stronger, etc. And some may even suggest that he just got bad of a, a hold of a bad batch of grapes from this new land. Now that just makes it all sound more like an excuse rather than a sin or what some might call a sin of ignorance. It's like, yeah, I know it was wrong, but... And then you go on to give your explanation, right? Or, yeah, I understand, but preacher, it's different in my circumstance. My friend, you can say whatever you want to say about the wine, but I like the way that, well, I shouldn't say I like it, but, but it's like the old country song says. It's not even an old song. The whole thing started with some alcohol. Okay, say whatever you want about the wine, but everything we're going to read started with some alcohol. Now, its effects on people is different, and of course, some of you are going to remind me of what it says in the book of Hezekiah, there's no books of Hezekiah, all things in moderation, preacher, come on now, and you quote it, and you sound very pious, I get that, there's some principle to that, but there's way more caution in the Bible concerning alcohol, which after all is a narcotic, and it causes the brain to lose control, the Japanese have an appropriate expression for it, and then I'll move on. First, the man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes the man. And that's exactly what's happened to Noah. And the disrespect we see in verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. He laughs. I don't know if he took some pictures. But he thought, it was a, he thought it was just the funniest thing ever that this old preacher who'd been so hard on this young boy would now be found drunk lying on the floor of his tent. And so he goes and tells his brother. We don't have the words of Moses yet where it says to honor your father and your mother. But I think it's kind of sad that it ever came to this. Now, perhaps Ham called his father on the phone, and he didn't pick up, so he's a little worried. Maybe he went by and knocked on the door, and nobody answered, and so he looked in. Maybe Mrs. Noah said, hey, Ham, would you go and check on your father? But what should have ended there became more like a locker room conversation with his older brothers. What should have covered a multitude of sin, right? First Peter chapter 4, was instead the exploitation of sin at his father's expense. May I just say, the devil loves to exploit sin, especially in the life of a believer who has otherwise been faithful for many, many years. Just one time of too much, one time of too many, one time of too far, and it might undermine a lifetime of otherwise moderation. I've buried young men found on the floor of their father's living room because he just took one too many. 
I've buried men who have fallen to their death at work because they showed up having smoked just one joint too many. You've seen car accidents. You know the tragic circumstance surrounding the result of just going a little too far. And be careful about exploiting the faults of your friends. Sometimes we do that in an effort to make ourselves feel better. But my friend, it's the devil's lie. And but for the grace of God, there go I. And you too. By the way, I have found that those who are the first to exploit the sins of others, like, hey, did you hear about, you know, they want to, oh, no, no, and they want to tell that story, they usually have the same kind of weakness themselves. It may show up in different ways. And this will show up later in our story, even especially as we turn to the next chapter, 10, then into 11 next week. Some of the greatest cities ever built were by the Canaanites, Cities like Babylon, Nineveh. In this tragic circumstance, we've seen the disgrace of Noah, the disrespect of Ham, but now see the decency of these older brothers, verse 23. And Shem and Japheth, they took a garment. So you, you, you still have an imagination, don't you? Yeah? Can you visualize anything? Yeah? Okay, so... This is one you can visualize. So they took a garment, I don't know, somebody's coat, a blanket. They took it out of the back seat of their car. They put this blanket, laid it upon each of their shoulders, and they, and they put it on their back, and they walk in backwards and lay it over their father, covering their father's nakedness, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. So instead of taking pictures, posting them all over the internet, you know, in that laptop from hell or something like that, they practiced love, and they covered their father's sin. Now, Warren Wearsby says, love does not cleanse sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that, right? First John. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. Love does not condone sin. We're challenged in Hebrews 10 and other places to encourage one another to love and to good works, to do the right thing. But love does cover sin in the sense of rather than spreading it and telling it and making a big deal and embarrassing others over it, 1 Peter 3. It's Proverbs 17, he that covers a transgression is seeking love. Proverbs 12, a prudent man covers shame. When sin is on display in another person's life, what is your response? What should be your response? What is our responsibility? Galatians 6. You who are spiritual, you think you're, you're doing okay, you're not caught up in it, you're living right with the Lord, you who are spiritual, Seek to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, humility, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, caught up in the exact same thing. As it has often been sadly said, in the battlefield of life, Christians are prone to shoot 
their own wounded. How sad. Well, from this family tragedy, we turn to a prophecy of this family. Verse 24 introduces it, and Noah, he wakes up from his drunken stupor, and when he, he knew what his younger son had done unto him, now what's the story of that? How did Noah come to know what had happened? I, I don't know. Perhaps the covering was a garment of Shem or Japheth, so he goes, he thinks, I'll go talk to them. Maybe he just thought, I'm going to go talk to my oldest son, Japheth, and find out what had happened. Maybe Japheth can tell me what went on. So, so there's a lot of backstory there that we don't, we don't have to fill in the detail. And as the result, we read the only, now, now let this sink in. We will now read the only recorded words of Noah. He preached 120 years, and you mean nothing he had to say was noteworthy? These are the only recorded words of Noah. And we find the first thing he speaks is about the enslavement of Canaan, verse 25. And so Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. Now, may I just in passing say, it was a sad, sad, terrible, tragic misuse of Scripture when this verse was used to justify the slavery of an entire people group. That is simply not the case to be made from this or any other verse for that matter. You don't justify that. Their slavery, though, was in many ways first and foremost to the ways of the world. And they would develop some of the most ungodly cities ever known to man. And that's why the Levitical law was given to Israel to keep them from falling into that kind of pattern and to keep themselves and guard themselves against such wickedness. The enslavement of the descendants of Ham was passed on to, as it's described in Exodus 20, unto the third and the fourth and the ensuing generations that would come. This curse becomes the flip side of what we read back up in verse 11, the Noahic covenant. Do you remember that? Chapter 9, verse 11. You remember this unconditional covenant? And it's given a symbol of the, the bow in the sky. I will, re, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. That's an unconditional covenant. However you live, wherever you live, that covenant is upon you. However, here's the curse that is going to be upon man who lives life in such a way that he has no fear of God. From the enslavement of Ham, we read the blessing of Shem and of his enrichment, verse 26. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan, that guy we were introduced to earlier, which is a relative of Ham, Canaan will be his servant. 
So just as Ham's descendants were enslaved, Shem's descendants would be enriched at their expense. And these enriched descendants of Shem are the Jewish people whose father, we'll learn by the time we get to Genesis 11 next week, is father who? Abraham. Now remember this is being written while Moses is leading them to the promised land of the Canaanites. But more important than any potential earthly treasure or enrichment is the spiritual enrichment, blessing, that we have all received through this group of people, through the sons, the family of Shem. What is the ultimate blessing that we have received? It's been talked about all through the Old Testament, and we come to know His name is Jesus, right? So notice there in verse 26, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, which is brought to us none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Shem is Noah's second-born. You may remember that conversation, another instance in this book of beginnings as we've worked our way through it, where the second-born is elevated in promise and blessing. So instead of Abel, we had Cain, of course, then the following brother. Instead of Isaac, we have Ishmael. An interesting story there in Genesis 17. By the way, uh, mark this down. I'll reference it later. Uh, We won't go into it, but Romans chapter 9, you can read that and see where the blessing comes. Jacob instead of Esau. And here we have Shem instead of of the firstborn Japheth. This choice of God's blessing, I can give it to the second, reminds us that just as not all Jews are believers, not all believers are Jews. God can give it to whom He chooses. Apart from the traditional things we might think of in blessing. Oh, he's a really good person. And so we make the assumption he must be in heaven. Oh, no, my friend. No. If you've not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, well, they're, they're, they're of the Jewish race. Well, surely they're going to be. No, my friend. Unless they have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, they're not going to be in heaven. The family prophecy has revealed, and again, Romans 9, but has revealed the enslavement of Ham, the enrichment through Shem, and now the enlargement through Japheth, verse 27. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants also. Ham's descendants are the Arab nations. Shem's descendants were of Abraham. And Japheth would be the rest of us, generally referred to as the Gentiles. We are the descendants of Japheth. They are initially the Europeans who would move out into new territory. Physically, they were successful in their conquest. But spiritually, 
they would still depend, as it says here, on the tents of Shem. That's a recognition of God's tabernacle, God dwelling with the Jewish people. In large part, the Jews would fail in bringing the good news to the world. But the early church, as the gospel spread, the early church has the spirit of Shem, the Jewish people, in Paul, the likes of Paul. Japheth can be seen in the likes of Cornelius. And we even have, on the outskirts, Ham, represented in the church by the Ethiopian. Remember that story. The story of Noah continues for more than 300 years, right? 350 years to be exact, down to verse 28 and 29. So Noah lived after the flood uh, 350 years. Now after this drunken stupor, I don't know how long, at least 300 years I would imagine. All the days of Noah were 900, second oldest man to have lived on record, 950 years. But notice, and he So I don't know how long you're going to live, but I do know one thing for certain. One day you will, and you will face this question, this eternal question of the Lord Jesus Christ, and have you accepted him? Well, his reputation perhaps has been recovered in this time. As the Scottish preacher Alexander White would say, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. That's all it is, just new beginnings. The grace of the gospel is not defined by your latest failure, but as it describes in Romans 12, it's the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What will be the prophecy spoken of your family? Finish well. Unless you thought I was done. Let's turn to chapter 10. We'll see. We'll, we'll grab it quickly. Chapter 10 is one of those chapters. You know when you read Genesis chapter 1? And it was like a summary that then Genesis 2 filled in? Genesis 10, you'll read it the same way. And it's like a summary of what we're going to read next week in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 10 is commonly called the Table of Nations. Uh, Miller, who was, uh, who, now this goes back to the late 1800s, early 19th, he wrote a book entitled The General Biblical Introduction. He has charted the origin of the nations using Genesis chapter 10 as the basis of the threefold divisions of the human family, which is revealed in the three sons of Noah. There's a Greek historian, Eusebius. He suggested that uh, God had instructed Noah to write a will to give these, la- these plots of land to his three sons. Now, most of this is speculation, but the purpose of Genesis 10 is given to us in the first verse and the last verse. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. We're going to see, well, we won't see it this morning, but 70 generations. They'll show up in the 70 that were, that were scattered in chapter 11. And verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the the flood. So the book of the Chronicles, when you go there, it begins at the same place that Genesis begins, and it takes us to the dividing of the, it leads up in the history up to the dividing of 
the kingdom of uh, Israel and, and Judah. But before we consider any of the spiritual lessons, let me just give you just a couple of things. One is, this isn't a complete listing. That uh, it establishes a pattern that's followed in the scripture. It summarizes the generations. There's some selective descendants that are given. Moses generally gives the names of the people group rather than the family. So, for example, you would have thought he might have said Ham, but instead of Ham, he says the Canaanites or Cana, right? So we've got the Canaanites, this group of people in the land of Canaan, the son of Ham. Seventy generations, again, we're not going to cover them all. But let me just summarize, first of all, Japheth's descendants, the oldest son. Japheth's descendants. Verses 1 through 5, let me read just verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the, excuse me, that's verse chapter 11. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided. So these, this is us, divided in the lands, everyone after their tongue, after their families, in their nations. And you'll see that played out in chapter 11. So in these first five verses, seven sons are listed, summarized with seven grandsons, and only two great-grandsons are listed. These settle north and west of the land of Canaan. They represent the Gentile nations who would come to have dominance, by the way, over all the earth. You can read that in Psalm chapter 72, other places, but Psalm chapter 72 that suggests these descendants have general dominance in all of the earth. And you see it today. Summarized next for us are the, the descendants of Ham. And that's in verse 6 down all the way down through verse 20. They're located in areas that we would identify today as Egypt, Palestine, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen. But notice there's a sort of parenthesis, and I won't go into it far, but just let me give you this parenthesis in this fellow named Nimrod. It's like he, he comes to this name and then he sort of gives a, some additional explanation. Chapter 10, verse 8 and 9. And Cush begat Nimrod. It may be familiar to you. I'll tell you why it is in a moment. He began to be a mighty man in, in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and wherefore it was said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, was before the Lord. Consider his important and familiar role in the history of Israel. These were the giants among men. So these were, these were the, the mighty men. You know? So you see that, you know, that guy that's in school that stands out as a ball player. You know, that kind of, they're that kind of people. They were bodyguards to kings. David had some. They were ruthless conquerors. They built the great cities of Babylon, Nineveh, which would later be used of God in the chastening of Israel when they rebelled. They are the Philistines and the land of the giants who obstructed the Jews as they were now to enter their land of promise. In Ham, we have the arch enemies of Israel throughout the Arab nations. In Japheth, we have the outer limits of the Gentile civilization and now in order to complete the setting as we turn next week to chapter 11, we come to the descendants of Shem, and that's through the balance of the chapter 10. But go to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongue, in their lands, after their nations. You get the sense of tongues and nations being divided. Two things to remember here. First, the pattern of the second born, which we gave before often receiving the blessing, and also the pattern of the most important descendants being listed last in the narrative of Scripture. If you were to list them by birth order, you would have Japheth, 
Shem, and Ham, oldest to youngest. But the blessing is going to go to who? Shem. Like a funnel, if you will, the Bible narrative, it, it brings all the sort of peripheral stories around and brings it down into what is the most important and narrows it down in verse 22 to Arphasad, the grandfather of Eber, verse 24, the grandfather of Peleg, verse 25, when the earth was divided, that we'll see in chapter 11, and Peleg was the great, great grandfather of Abraham. In thee shall all of the nations be blessed. But even among these descendants of God's promised Messiah are unbelieving people, enemies of the gospel. Genesis 10 should be read the same way as Genesis 1. I mentioned that earlier. And whether it is here in the days of Noah where they were first established or when they were wandering in the wilderness or even later when they are scattered among the nations, the important thing to remember is that God still keeps his promise. God will forever maintain his glory. 